Welcome back to the only podcast guaranteed to pair well with a Pisco Sour, and hopefully the soon-to-be anointed podcast of Chile. Beethoven walks into a bar. I am Jason Sieber, the Kansas City Symphony's associate conductor. And I'm Mike Gordon, principal flute of the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the director of education and community engagement. Well, you guys, today I am so excited to have a fantastic conversation with conductor Paolo Bortolamioli, and he's going to tell us all why we should put it on pause. He is currently the associate conductor of the LA Philharmonic, music director of the Orchestra Sinfonica Esperanza Azteca in Mexico, and principal guest conductor of the Philharmonica de Santiago in his native Chile. Paolo, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, so before anything else happens, I need you to tell everyone about your video series, Ponle Paolo, <laughs> or Pre- press pause, you said. Yeah. Uh, translated, put it on pause. So I, I discovered these um, when I was preparing for our conversation today. And I literally said to Jason and Stephanie, and they can confirm this. I said, you have to watch this. It will scratch you where you itch. <laughs> <laughs> can Those I tell were your you, exact words. Can I tell you that I was wearing my headphones when I got that text and it just read it to me? It was like, Michael Gordon sent you a text. This will scratch you where you itch. <laughs> it was just like with no context. I was very confused. Yeah, it's kind of a random text. We're very friendly on this podcast. So, so anyway, please uh, describe for our listeners uh, these wonderful videos because um, they're not only so informative and contain a lot of music, but also just visually, I think they're incredibly um, engaging and creative. Well, first of all, thank you so much to bring this up because this is a really lovely uh, project of mine that I, I developed in my home country um, five to six years ago. And every time a person told me I saw Pole Pausa and, and I loved it, for me, it's kind of like you're you're giving compliments to my son or something like that. You know, it's mm. I, I feel so <laughs> rewarded. So this born from my um, kind of like urgency to find ways to communicate to audiences because I, even if it's it's something that we usually um, hear a lot, you know, like creating new audiences, engaging new audiences, it's something that completely kind of um, trigger my mind every time to, to focus in new ways, imaginative ways to actually achieve this. So when I was um, younger, well, actually, when I was a uh, children, I saw the um, the Bernstein uh, youth concerts, you know, um, uh, the young people concerts, and uh, and that blew my mind when I was like twelve years old. Mm-hmm. And then I grew up with that concept of like this guy being uh, everything, <laughs> you know, like being conductor and being pianist, mm-hmm. being composer, but at the same time, so skillful in in communication with uh, with the audience. And uh, those uh, videos somehow shaped my own way to uh, to make these bridges with the people that it's in a, in a concert hall. So I started very young doing these experiments with my family, with my friends of like having my piano recitals pre-talk while I was in the piano. So I kind of like uh, mm-hmm. talked to them about like what to listen and, and how to pay attention to and all these things. And then I, I make a uh, piano excerpt and then I play the, the whole thing. I didn't know that that was a thing, you know, because I, I just did it because I was, I was trying to, copy the spirit of Bernstein. Um, and then I grew up having all this interest in, in, um, in social media or especially in movies. I am a, 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 a big movie fan. 
So when I was a teenager, you know, I started to edit it uh, like uh, homemade movies and with the, the softwares that I, I bought. Well, actually, originally putting two televisions together and, and wiring them up uh, from the back. So <laughs> really kind of like the, nice. the old fashioned editing. Uh, so the, this whole concept of like having uh, something that can speak about art and music, but at the same time being really entertaining mm-hmm. was in my mind all the time. So uh, five years ago, I sat down with a very good friend, a journalist that he loves music. And I told him, you know, we must do something about this, uh, about like, you know, engaging people and making um, fun ways to listen to music. And I had this blurry concept of, you know, a piano, uh, a white scenario based kind of like in the matrix, you know, where you can load ideas. Um, And the concept that I learned through watching uh, social media videos that Anything you want to express, it has to be really short, but at the same time, really entertaining and really visual engagement, engaging. So Ponle Pausa, born in that kind of like mashup of ideas, concepts, trends, um, you know, um, influences. And somehow uh, when we recorded the very first three episodes and while we were editing them, because it took us a while to actually uh, make the first one ready to go, uh, we found out that this, oh, this is working and this is something. It has their own language, their own way to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then in Chile, it became really popular. So then uh, a TV cable station wanted to broadcast and then it, it, it became kind of like uh, being uh, spread out like a, a viral video in the cultural uh, world. And then somehow people from Spain, people from Mexico, people from Colombia started to write me about like, wow, this is so great. So then the final stage was obviously make the subtitles so everybody mm-hmm. could see it. And now I'm talking to you <laughs> uh, with, <laughs> with the same uh, happiness that uh, I, I started my, um, my, my talk that is like when someone discovered Ponle Pausa, for me, it's such a beautiful moment. Yeah, I, I mean, for just for our listeners. So, number one, we'll we'll put some links uh, so people can find these uh, videos easily, and and they are subtitled in English. You don't have to uh, understand Spanish fluently to watch them. Although I will say, even even without the subtitles, it's it's very clear what you're talking about. And what's so cool about it, there are two things that that really struck me about it. Number one. Um, is just how you're sitting at the piano and you're playing, uh, you know, these these excerpts that you're talking about, and then they just kind of elide seamlessly into recordings of the pieces with full orchestra. So that was that was number one. And the second really cool thing for me about it, just because, and one day maybe we'll have to talk offline about video editing because the last <laughs> two years of my life have kind of been all about that. Um, but the creativity and the complexity of the way you use like the three dimensional text all through these videos to kind of highlight the concepts that you're talking about and the text is flying over you and behind you and, you know, pieces of me, you're waving your hand and they're moving around with you. It's all, (laughs) it's all very sophisticated and, and not just bells and whistles. I mean, it really supports what you're talking about, which I think is the most important thing. So it's really, really cool. And I, I can't recommend enough that, um, the people go look at them, but we shouldn't only talk about Ponle Pausa. We want to <laughs> we want to get to know who you are as well. So so back up a little bit for us, if you would, and um, you know tell tell us just first about you know how your musical journey began in Chile. I mean, I think I think it's clear that you feel you know so invested in the musical culture there because you created this thing uh, in addition to, you know, all of your other work there. So, so tell us a little bit about growing up in Chile and um, becoming a musician there. Sure. I, 
come from a music lover family because um, even though my grandfather from my mom's side, uh, he went to the conservatory. He studied piano and composition in an early age. Then he um, took another path and, and he went to, to uh, the, the law school. He became a lawyer, uh, but still he played piano for his uh, whole life more as, a, as an amusement and, or something that for him was so important for her, his soul. But he wasn't a professional musician. And in my father's uh, side, he was um, a kind of like an opera gore or symphonic you know, lover that went to every single concert, opera, ballet, piano recital. It was the purpose of his life to actually being in a theater, uh, absorbing music. So my love for music comes directly from love itself because I, I grew up observing these people madly in love with this sound world. Uh, although I, uh, to become a musician, I kind of like skipped uh, generations from it because my grandfather dreamt to have a son or a daughter musician and none of my, my uh, you know, aunts, uncles were musicians. So when I started to, to show interest, real interest for my grandfather, obviously, was kind of like a, a huge deal. And it was really beautiful to actually talk about music with him while I was growing or experience all these concerts uh, with my dad when I was, you know, five, six, seven. But it was at seven years old that something happened to me that actually opened my mind, my soul, my eyes, my everything. I went to a concert where they were playing Beethoven Five. And uh, two days before that concert, the live concert, my dad sat me down in the living room to uh, listen to a, a cassette of the Beethoven Five because he wanted to explain me some things, you know, like what is a symphony, which does it mean to have like different movements, what is, uh, uh, what is a fugue, you know, because he wanted to play this, this game that uh, when the stars, I squeeze his hands like I'm recognizing that moment. Oh. So I got really prepared to that first experience with the, with the Beethoven and with the theater at seven years old. But what I didn't know is that when it comes to the transition between the third to the fourth movement, which I still consider one of the most perfect miracles in, in you know, music literature history, uh, I didn't know that it was going to move me so much. You know, when the music fades out and then we hear the timpani whispering, uh, you know, uh, very, very far away. And then the string starts this buildup that gets into this amazing triumph of this C major that we were expecting from the very first bar of the symphony. I start to cry. Uh, and when I cried, my dad looked at me and, 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 and was like, what, what's going on? And, and I told him something that completely changed my life. I said, I not, don't know what I'm crying because it's not sadness what I feel. And that moment changed the whole thing. And, and, and when the concert ended, he took me backstage to greet the conductor because, because he knew it. And the conductor was so moved by my emotions, by my reaction, that he hacked me. Uh, and he said to me something that also kind of, it was, this is, this is it, because he said, well, this is exactly why we do what we do. And from that moment on, my life changed. And I, at seven year old, I decided this is, this is it. This is what I want to be because I want to, I want to experience this 
every day of my life. And I really want to find out there other Paolos that are going to be moved by music mm-hmm. the way I, I, I had. That's a really great story, Paolo. And talk about, so you were, are a pianist, mm-hmm. right? And so that was your primary instrument growing up. Yes. Talk about your path from being passionate about the piano to wanting to be a conductor. Yes. And how that spark came about. That's a great question, but it's a really simple answer because I always wanted to be a conductor because that that co- that yeah. concert, that Beethoven 5 concert, kind of like uh, struck me in so many levels. And one of those were that I, I wanted to become this guy, you know, this privileged guy that is there in that position, making music with so many others musicians souls and and experience these waves of passion and sound and somehow i i got obsessed with the with the symphony sound uh so i started to listen only you know symphonies and tone poems and operas and everything the piano was the instrument of my home of my house because i we lived with my with my um with my grandparents so it was the the instrument i listened since always and of course i love the piano and i i loved the whole process of becoming a, a you know a pianist and and doing everything you know like like chamber music or piano recitals playing uh, with an orchestra but every note i played in the piano was always kind of like with this picture in mind like okay this mm-hmm. this is a path to get there, to become a conductor. So the piano has always been my closest friend to, to actually understand that world and not the other way around. I never ever considered to be a pianist, for instance, never. Because also it's not something that I actually can relate with in the, uh, in the most, um, how do you say, like uh, in, inner world of the, of, of the piano, uh, when you contrast with the orchestra, I feel, absolutely much more comfortable in front of, you know, 200 people, a choir, a massive orchestra, than me alone with the piano in front of an audience. That for me is so awkward. Hmm. Uh, being in front of the orchestra is kind of like, yes, this is, this is what I, I, this is my kind of environment. So I'm curious, um, did you ever play piano in the orchestra, like have you have you ever played yes. like orchestral piano? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because just from just from a pianist perspective, I guess how do you go about learning to understand how the orchestra, works, yeah. you know, like the inner workings of an orchestra? And yeah. I mean, how the instruments, you know, how how the musicians actually produce their sounds, yeah, 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 yeah. and and you know, just from a pianist perspective, who doesn't I, do all of that? Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. I I think it's kind of like a multiple layer answer because um, from one point of view, before I I go to the orchestra itself answer, uh, from one point of view, I think the the piano prepares you to understand the the phenomenon of the orchestra in another level more than any other instrument, which is a company. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all this kind of like being so sensitive to the breathing, to the bowing, to to the singers, to everything, because you have to accompany them uh, so often, prepares you to, to that kind of like uh, reaction into the what is happening, what is going to happen, what is the turn uh, that is also, I think, prepares you so much for opera. Being a pianist, it's incredibly helpful for that. In the other hand, though, you are completely right. The piano, it's not an instrument that kind of like has so much um, presence in the orchestral repertoire. So to try to to 
fill that void uh, while I was uh, growing up, I did two things. First, it was like asking the, the, my teachers, my conducting teachers, to let me play the piano part whenever I could. So I, I, I got to play some of the, you know, substantial piano uh, repertoire, Firebird or, or even the, the Miraculous Mandarin many, many years ago. Mm. Uh, and so to understand how it's to get inside the orchestra. But on the other hand, which is nothing related with the, with the piano itself, I was kind of like a, a, a guy that loved to be in every single rehearsal possible and sitting down in, inside the orchestra. So I, I, for years and years, week after week, repertoire after repertoire, changing conductors, changing everything, I was always, you know, among violinists, uh, besides uh, wood play, uh, woodwind players uh, with the horns uh, back in the in the percussion. So I I experienced the, the that kind of like a real world of the stand uh, directly from people that was sitting sitting next to me because I thought that was much more useful to be seated back in the audience, uh, you know, and just listening like, uh, like, like the public, because yes, of course, it is helpful to watch the process of, uh, of a rehearsal going on. Obviously, that's, that's the masterclass every week. But if you actually can't be in the orchestra, then, you know, <laughs> even to learn what are they joking about, and, you know, and, and what is the, the whole <laughs> dynamic between musicians, it, everything helps. Well, so what you're saying is you got to hear all the wisecracks back there in the horn oh, section. Oh yeah, <laughs> everything, everything. And I and I and I and I, and I kind of like learned also how to how to deal with this really subtle way to make jokes and nobody don't, nobody actually uh, understand. <laughs> so yeah. when I when I am conducting, I I don't feel so much intimidated anymore about that, you know, like these uh, poker face jokes. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a fine line between entertaining yourself and your friends and getting fired. <laughs> exactly. Very true. But, it, but I think it is good to put yourself in the musician's shoes as a conductor mm -hmm, as totally. often as you can. I mean, a lot of conducting is psychology. Absolutely. And working with a group of people and trying to get the best out of them at all times. So, there's a lot to be said about no matter what instrument you play. I think that's so cool that you put yourself intentionally in those parts of the orchestra to really feel what it's like. Absolutely. I mean, in other words, it's try to really understand this complex instrument because it's not keys, it's people, it's person, it's personalities, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, different uh, ways to approach the instrument or facing the day or their own relationships or, you know, the, the, the evolving of the storytelling of the whole orchestra as a family. So there are many, 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 many factors to consider beyond what a score tells you. Right. And one of the things that I, I'm always envious of uh, pianists, of course, is that they can sit down and, you know, play a passage of a score, which, you know, I can play little bits and pieces on the flute, but I'm never going to have the feeling of like actually playing something that sounds like the piece all by myself. Exactly. And, and that is really rewarding for us in the process of study because you feel the whole, kind of like the idea of the whole. Yeah. And, I mean, it's something, of course, that, you know, I think all conductors are probably required to to do at some level at some point in their lives, but to 
but to actually, you know, be a pianist and, and be able to do it, you know, like I've seen you do on your videos, like we were talking about, I, I'm always, always envious of that because I think probably if I could do that, I would just sit at home playing orchestra music on the piano all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and another advantage is as, as, I mean, there's so many great conductors who are pianists, probably half perhaps of, of the great conductors of the world are, are great pianists as well. And there's something about from a very beginning of your musical training, being able to think about and hear different lines all of counterpoint all at the same time, thinking of things harmonically instead of just melodically as we do on most instruments, just playing a single line and, you know, different rhythms against each other in, in each hand. So there's a lot that plays into setting you up uh, to be a successful conductor, I think, as opposed to the rest of us, like I'm a violinist, so yeah, I play double stops and triple stops and that kind of thing. But normally I'm just playing a single line. So I'm always trying to figure out how my line fits in with everyone else. But at a piano, you're playing often four or more lines at once, or th at least two right. or three. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think nobody has kind of like the perfect solution because obviously um, as a pianist also you miss uh, kind of like, you know, as, as you said in the strings, for instance, like how does it feel to sustain a sound right. and, and, and you can make it forever and how the, the, the quality of that is affected on the way you use your string and, and all, all these things. Or the same thing with, uh, with the understanding of uh, a particular uh, chord from the woodwinds uh, aspect by how much do you know that particular note is behaving toward the, the whole in terms of like uh, listening the, your neighbors and making that intonation uh, somehow not, uh, it's relative because you are adapting to who is, uh, is surrounding you. And all these nuances, of course, uh, you don't have it in, in the piano because you just, you know, play the core or you, you play the note of the violin, but then it's immediately fading, fading. But at the same time, I agree with you that gives you a, a really kind of, um, a uh, complete tool to get as close as you can to the final idea of the structure and the intricate counterpoints or the sense of the harmony layers or how they evolve, how they, they shape um, beyond the, the each line separately. Right. So, you know, you're, you're such an articulate communicator about music, which is, you know, you would think kind of a, default qualification for a conductor, but unfortunately it's not always true. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I read in your bio too, you said you're particularly interested in new music, which I would love to talk about because, you know, I think it's a little bit odd actually in our genre of music that you kind of have to convince people to try something new, right? I mean, in so many other genres of music, there's new music constantly and people are looking forward to it, eager for it. Mm. When you talk about music, you know, how do you how do you get people excited about new music and to understand it? Because it's it's so vital. If if we only ever play Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart, you know that can really only go on for so long, right? I mean, we have to the, the art form has to keep evolving, and it is. And I think the challenge is that every new piece is kind of in a new language too, right? So how how do you how do you get people excited about that and build an audience around it? Thank you for that question. I think it's really important to address it always. Uh, but the way I see it and the way I share it with the audience and even with orchestras when we have to program something, it's always the same. I start saying, you know, even Beethoven 5 was a new piece. 
one day. Uh, even, you know, San Mateo's passion mm. was premiered and it was heard for the very, very, very first time. Uh, so when you remember that, when you don't forget that what we do is not the same as hanging pictures in a museum where we are going to visit them and contemplate them and appreciate them, but actually we are in every single rehearsal or performance actually helping the last process of creation of a composer, which is the performing mm -hmm. of that piece, because without it, it doesn't exist. It's just an idea. It's just a concept. So if you don't forget that, then you bring up the subject of new music as something that it's part of the nature of what we do. What we have been doing always is new music. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. We are always communicating these ideas from composers to an, a, an audience that is there for the very first time in a way that it's metaphorically, as, a, as I said, for instance, like a reperform Beethoven 5. Okay, yes, we all know it, but still, it's it only exists when you hear it, right. not before, not after. And in a not such a metaphorical way, which is trying to make the comparison about like, you know, we are premiering this piece that it was actually finalized yesterday, literally, as, you know, the overture of Mozart he wrote for his opera in the morning of the same uh, premiere. So that happens. That's how music behaves. Creation, it's, it's uh, in, in performing arts, is that business. It's, you know, like showing something that it's new every single day. So that's my first kind of statement, uh, that that's our responsibility. That's what we do. We are not only showcasing something that we know, but actually we are doing what we have been always been doing, which is performing pieces, news or old, they're just performed. And the other one, which is related to what you said about like uh, uh, styles and stuff, I think it has exactly the same approach. Uh, for the program that we are going to do be, uh, together in a couple of weeks, uh, the whole idea of the program is that we are visiting kind of like the, the ways composers uh, get the sounds of their environments and the sounds of the culture and make something from it according to their own prism, you know, the, the, or the, their own ways to experience life. In Salón México from Copland, for instance, uh, this is a particularly... Uh, funny piece that it's uh it's so joyful it's, it's really tricky and difficult i know but it's it's <laughs> a lot of it's a lot of energy but it's interesting that it's an american composer absorbing the mexican culture in the way he saw it he experienced he you know uh, eat it smelled it and then he comes to his uh lab and, and, and he makes this uh, fantastic teeny piece about how he experienced Mexico. But then in the second half, we have this Godali Bartok thing situation, which is even more interesting because it's both uh, uh, the same look at the, uh, at the sounds of the, um, of the countryside, right? But one, it's more uh, kind of toward the romantic way of the folklore, which is more obvious and it's more direct. 
and the other one, it's much more a deconstruction of the same. And, and it's looked through the mirror of a society that it's uh, broken down, that it's uh, looking back with some such a broken nostalgia. There's something that it's not possible anymore because we are in conflict, because the city has changed, because violence became a tool to actually express something. And violence becomes something that it's needed in this music uh, in order to succeed. So when you understand the whys and the hows this create, creative process came along, then you, th I think, you understand what is your purpose as, as the audience, which is to be open and experience these moments, these sounds, these, these ideas, and the connection, direct connection with the artist mind behind it. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense to me. And, you know, the, the other thing that I often find frustrating, not necessarily for myself, but for the audience's sake, is, you know, a lot of times I sit down to play a piece of new music, either a, a solo work or certainly an orchestral work. I get to play it a whole lot of times before I perform it and hear it many times. And, I mean, it's true of any piece of music, but especially new music, you know, by a composer with whom I'm not familiar, that process of preparing the piece, I... I discover the piece and it, it makes a new kind of sense to me by the time I perform it. And I always think, well, it's too bad the audience doesn't get to come to all three shows this weekend because I bet by Sunday, mm -hmm. you know, they would really be getting something out of this that they're not getting on Friday. You know, Mike, I'm so glad that you said that because I've thought a lot about new music lately. And I think part of this issue is like this cancel culture that we live in right now. And if you hear something once, it's like, I don't like that. And you can just get rid of it and just discount it and kind of move on. But I think we we also have to remember that, you know, a lot of these great works that we play so often and are completely in love with, the first time they were performed, they were, you know, they were not liked at all, um, totally. you know, and, and would go a long time without being performed again. And it's only through kind of the discovery and then rediscovery of a lot of music that really shines, you know, shines a light on what, what it actually is. Totally. No, I was just going to say, we just played a, a concert yeah. this weekend with two pieces, um, the Brahms Violin Concerto and WC's La Mer that at their first performances, they weren't that well received, but then mm -hmm. the second or third performance, someone heard it, a, a critic or someone influential and said, this is a fantastic piece. And then of course the piece is put on the map and we consider those two of the greatest mm -hmm. pieces ever written now. Paolo, I d I'm glad you brought up uh, your, your program um, because I'm so excited to hear it. I will tell you that um, I am a recovering clarinetist. So this program, <laughs> uh, I do have a question for you and it's, which clarinetist in your life made you so mad that you would put the Dances of Galanta and Miraculous Mandarin back to back on a program? And, and Salon Mexico. And Salon Mexico I know, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. I, I know. It's it's kind of like a like a. It sounds like a personal revenge to some clarinetists. I know, but in the other in the other hand, I I think it's it's uh, one of those uh, dream nights for a clarinetist. You have it to is. play these amazing solos uh, yeah. because yes, they are really challenging. They are really difficult, but at the same time, they are amazing. I mean, are in the core of the clarinetist repertoire. Well, I will tell you too, but I mean, by, by the time um, this episode with you comes out, we will have just played 
uh, a performance with our principal clarinetist, Raymond Santos, performing the Mozart Clarinet Concerto two weeks prior to this Amazing. concert. So <laughs> he is having a great time preparing this month. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's having a wow. good month. <laughs> it's also his birthday, too. So <laughs> Luckily, he's an exceptional clarinetist, though, and he's going to play it all quite well. And as a matter of fact, we should mention um, Rachmaninoff Piano Show number yeah. four is yeah. on the program as well. And I'm so glad that's on the program because, you know, people tend to do two and three exactly. and two and three over and over and over again. So I'm glad that's on. And Conrad Tao is one of the truly great pianists of the world. And uh, just an incredible musical mind, a great composer. Um, I actually first worked with Conrad when he was 16 years old. He came and played the Greek concerto wow. with the youth orchestra I was conducting in Louisville at the time. So... I'm, I'm especially excited that he's going to be in Kansas City for this concert as well. Yeah, I know. And, and thank you for bringing that up, the, the, the Rachmaninoff, because I, you're absolutely right. I mean, we tend to know only two and three, uh, which is great because they're both amazing pieces. Uh, I, I love them deeply, uh, especially three. It has like a, a really special place in my heart. Um, and somehow we might know also the, the Paganini Rhapsody, which is a fantastic fantastic piece but uh fourth it's kind of like nobody knows it or not nobody but it's not that well known mm -hmm. and it's amazing it's an amazing piece it's such uh with a lot of uh, new ideas it's a refreshing uh point of view of what he was doing obviously a lot more influenced by his staying in the states so there's jazzy moments and and and, and kind of like really colorful orchestration but the one thing that i strikes me the most about that concerto it's that for some reason, the one thing that it might get people uh, kind of like uh, uh, far from the concert, I think it's exactly the reason it should be more interesting now, which is that it's not the usual expected Rachmaninoff. It's completely unexpected. It's so kind of a, a turn of, 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 of events on how uh, Rachmaninoff uh, approached music and romanticism. It's much more modern. It's much more, uh, you know, with, with uh, uh, unexpected twists. The form is kind of like this deconstruction of uh, the three big uh, um, movements. So I think it's an amazing addition uh, to the program, uh, which makes me incredibly, uh, you know, exciting and happy about it because the, ev everything in that program it's great. I think it's a really, 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 really beautiful, exciting, and adventurous um, program for all of us. Absolutely. So I have to say, I'm I'm particularly excited about the Rachmaninoff Four because I don't think that I've ever played it that I can recall. And when I was a teenager, of course, I did like you know most teenagers, and I had uh, a two disc set uh -huh. of Ashkenazi playing. Um, all four concertos and the and the variations, and I pretty much with uh, yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I pretty much had that on a loop on uh, on in my bedroom when I was doing uh, homework, you know, in high school, and I would I would crank it like. <laughs> You know, like a real nerdy dork in my room. I was like, just about just, to say, nerd alert, nerd just alert. cranking Rachmaninoff, and then my mother would come in and yell at me and say, Dad, turn it down. And he's like, well, you know, it could be worse. It could be um, worse. It could be worse. But <laughs> Some I, kids are playing Megadeth or Metallica know, in their well, bedrooms. I love that. And their mom I yells at them to turn it down. Well. It just, Mike is playing Rachmaninoff. I love it. It took me longer to develop a taste for Megadeth um, <laughs> than I did for Rachmaninoff. But I, I, so I, I want to ask you one question. Um, 
one last thing uh, before before we have to wrap up today because it will it will elide into our uh, greatest gimmick ever, the top five. But um, you, hmm. um, among making videos and conducting all over the place, um, somehow also found time to write a book. <laughs> yes, which <laughs> which is very impressive to me that anyone would write a book, but let alone someone who's also a touring, working conductor and making videos and all these other things. So, but it, it, tell us a little bit about this book, yeah, uh, because it's it's got a wonderful title, Rubato. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so that well, that the book for me, it's if I if I said earlier that uh, Pole Pausa was kind of like. A a child, a really kind of like beloved child. Uh, Rubato is, is by far, I think, the most special and personal uh, project so far because it had uh, to do with a lot of things going on in my life, but uh, at the same time, uh, it, it, it happened in the right time because it was during the pandemic. Uh, I was with my son, with my seven-year-old son. Uh, we were together all the time, the two of us, just the two of us. Uh, I got divorced before the pandemic. Uh, so it was a really kind of, you know, family moment for both of mm -hmm. us. And somehow I wanted to write a book for many, many years. Actually, I, in, in my computer, I still have this file that it calls book. <laughs> With the, I, I start to you know, pull all, all of these um, thoughts and ideas or articles that I want to revisit or whatsoever. So I, I had in mind kind of like a blurry concept, or at least I had uh, uh, topics that I wanted to talk about, you know, like um, criticism in music or sensuality and sexuality in music, which I think it's, it's fascinating through, you know, the history or, uh, uh, or um, the, obviously the, the experience of an orchestra, only ideas. But when I was there with my son, the, the two of us, and, and, you know, finding ways to be together all the day busy, you know, like uh, either uh, playing or, I, you know, teaching him the, his first words to write or, or baking or, you know, like the whole day with a lot of things to do. I then struck, struck me that at some point before the pandemic, when I was in an airport, literally in an airport, because this is a true, true story, I started to, to write a letter to him, to, to my future son, when he's uh, growing up, mm -hmm. uh, at least when he's a teenager, because now he's seven, when the pandemic was, you know, five, six. Uh, and I started this letter, hypothetical letter, to him in the future to try to explain why his dad is so madly in love with music. And how come he's always traveling, but at the same time, he's always there for him. Uh, and this started because when he was three years old, uh, I bought a pajama to him, like a Chewbacca pajama. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, with the prices, there was this beautiful draw of Chewbacca. And, uh, and you know, a, a, a three years old, uh, you know, toddler, you never know what it's going to strike him the most. And it wasn't the pajama, but actually was his drawing. Uh, so <laughs> he caught it from the pajama. He dressed with the pajama, of course. And he gave me that. He gave me this, this, this drawing as kind of like a, 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 as a personal gift, which hmm. is this one. I always Aww. bring it with him. With oh, me. It's cute. Nice. Yeah, it's always with me every day. In, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of like my, I don't know how you say it, but like the thing you are with, with it, Always. So because of that teeny tiny gift that for me was so important because he was his first conscious gift, mm -hmm. I started this letter to try to explain him 
why I do what I do. And this letter stays there, you know, for, for two years. And when I was in the pandemic, there, there, there was, there was the answer. It's like, well, this is the book. The book is a letter to my son to try to explain art, music, love, everything that is uh, around us in the, in the way that somehow I link what I do to this permanent invitation to people to connect with this, with this amazing thing we, we, we get the chance to do every day. So the book is about that. It's about, it's about beauty, it's about art, it's about music through a playlist of my most beloved uh, works uh, that in my life kind of like shaped my thinking. Uh, the playlist is, is uh, not the, the, the maybe the, no, the most expected one because yes, it starts with Beethoven 5 for obvious reasons that I explained to you. But then it you know, gets into you know, the, the quartet for the end of the times or Wozzeck or Elektra, you know, it's just like a lot of like uh, heavy stuff because there are things that in the narrative make sense to explain why music took those paths. So the book turned out to be uh, a, a good way to in, uh, invite people that's not completely connected to music, but at the same time, to people that already loved music. But at the end of the day, it's all about what I wanted to tell my son. Oh, well, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That is. Is, it, is it translated into, uh, into English by any chance? Not yet. I Not know yet. I, I, it's, it's, it's part of the plan, but the pandemic kind of like make everything slow. So it's uh, fun. I'd need to learn there. Spanish anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mike, right. <laughs> Mike also has a lot of time on his hands. So if you need somebody to translate it, he can, we'll just put him on that. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> that will not end well, but <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad that we, we got into this idea of the playlist though, because we have a, uh, a, a thing we do here on our podcast called The yeah. Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Top five. It's a top five. It's a top five. It's the top five. It's a top five. It's the 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 top five. Beethoven walks into a bar. But since you have, have uh, talked a little bit about your top five pieces of music on your playlist, we thought it would be fun to just go through our top five pieces that would be on our playlist. Oh, yeah. Um, so, Mike, do you have, what are your top five playlist pieces? I, I do. I mean, it's really maybe orchestral pieces, but uh, anyway, so I've in no particular order, I've got Brahms fourth, got to be there, uh, Rachmaninoff, second piano concerto, we, we talked about cranking in my bedroom, uh, Mahler nine, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Dvorak seven. Oh, yes. For me. Oh, I agree. There That's you go. It's a, great a little piece. off the beaten path, but I love no, no, it. No, no, no. My, my favorite Dvorak. Absolutely. My favorite yeah. Dvorak. Agreed. Agreed. And of course, Beethoven seven. Good. Nice. All nice. good choices. Nice. Mike. What about you, Jason? Uh, well, I'm old school. I don't use an iPod or anything. I, I love popping in CDs. So I listed the five that I've been listening to the most lately. Mahler five. God, one of my favorite symphonies of all time. I have a recording of the Beethoven Harp and Serioso Quartets with the Cleveland Quartet, both mm -hmm. great pieces and great performances. Sibelius 2 and 5, two of my favorite symphonies. 
the Corn Gold Violin Concerto, which is one of my all-time favorite concertos for any instrument. And I have really been into Dear Evan Hansen, the music from the musical Dear Evan Hansen lately. So I've been listening to that nonstop. Ask my wife. I, I run around the house <laughs> singing it all the time. Just some incredible songs in it. So... <laughs> That's my top five. How about you, Stephanie? Uh, you know, when I when I was interviewing for my job here ten years ago, our our executive director at the time, Frank Byrne, asked me what my my favorite classical music to listen to was, and uh, my my two answers for him was anything by Shostakovich. But if I have to list, I say Shostakovich ten, um, and then. Uh, Barbara Adagio, I just, I can't, I, I don't know why I, well, everybody knows why, but that's, uh, it's definitely on my list. It's just something, um, beautiful to listen to. Um, the Rachmaninoff Paganini variations, which we've mentioned a few times today, yeah. which made me so excited mm-hmm. <laughs> to get into that. Um, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet suites. I love all three of them. Um, I totally. love the music to that. And, um, Jason Mahler five, same page. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, Paolo, you you ever. mentioned you mentioned some, but give give us your your playlist. Well, that oof, it's almost impossible, but okay, I'll try. Uh, following the the path that you have said, uh, I am a Malerian too. I, I I'm deeply in love with Mahler. I though have a much more inclination toward the end of Mahler. So I mm. I, I love Seventh, which is the mm. the rare one. Uh, I love uh, Das Lied von der Erde because I think it's just like an amazing piece that not usually it's on the list. And of course, ninth. I mean, ninth, it's just completely out of this world for me. Uh, I agree with you with the Romeo and Juliet. I, I, I also have this feeling with that music. It's, it's just his most beautiful score. Uh, I yeah. think the, the, the Prokofiev romantic, but at the same time dealing with all modernism in, in a, such a wise balance it's it's perfect i yesterday i was talking about this piece actually with my my young musicians from the mexico azteca symphony because we're going to play uh an excerpts of of the <clears throat> of the suites and one thing that i uh i pointed them out it was that somehow what it makes so great about prokofiev romeo and juliet it's that he's facing this subject that it's uh it's um it has no time, right? This, this uh, kind of uh, tragedy that it's not only about Romeo and Juliet, but it's actually about all of us uh, facing mm-hmm. things that are bigger than us. That, you know, when they're this power, power are against each other that comes, you know, from early ages, even before we were born. And somehow we try to still be there with our humanity where love, it's more important, but somehow these things gets in the way. And, 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 and that is why I think the Prokofiev approach, it's so genius because he's uh, looking back to the romanticism, but in between wars, I mean, it, it, it happened the first world war. It mm-hmm. hasn't happened the second one. So the world obviously is affected by this, uh, by this whole uh, broken glass. You know, it's not the same. You cannot look at the romantic era the same way. And that is what makes this score so powerful in, in, uh, in a much more deeper level. Absolutely. Uh, and to end this really brief list, because, you know, I have thousands, <laughs> of millions of favorites. 
uh, as I said, you know, it's kind of like Don Giovanni. You can fall in love with a lot of different repertoire. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it, I, I can't help it. You know, yeah, it's so difficult to, <clears throat> to grab only five. But um, I'm also a huge Beethovenian uh, fan. Uh, and I have like also kind of like this uh, tendency to prefer, I mean, I love equally nine, the ninth symphony equally, completely equally. But I, uh, when I program, I usually tend to go for the pair numbers. I, I crazy about two. I think two, it's just that gem. It's a jewel. It's just like a treasure that it's uh, not underrated, but Unfriendly, not so played, maybe because it's really difficult though. <laughs> uh, but still, it's an amazing symphony. And it's also the same with four. Four, I, I think it's, it's, it's amazing. Six, of course, it's more played and eight as well. But yeah, the pair numbers are kind of something that I have like a special uh, love for it. Nice. Awesome. Nice. Well, we appreciate uh, the time you've taken with us today so much. In our in our last minute or two, uh, before I know you have to run, we have, it's, it's in the contract. We're obligated <laughs> to ask you this. Our podcast yes. is called Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. And so we ask every one of our guests, what is your favorite beverage that you might enjoy if you walked into a bar with Beethoven? Oh, no. By no means, I wouldn't answer another thing that it wouldn't be to share a really good glass of Chilean wine with Beethoven, of course. Ah, <laughs> fantastic. Nice. And, and while you're sharing that glass of Chilean wine, what would you ask Beethoven? You get one question to ask him. Oh, I don't know if I would ask him something. I would trade it for a huge, long hug. Ah, <laughs> I love that. Nice. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just something that you, I wouldn't miss, you know, like... I mean, probably he would be really uncomfortable, <laughs> but uh, but it's just like this desire to express him gratitude because he changed so million, many, 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 many lives. So yeah, yeah it's like, thank you. I love that. I like that. Beautiful. That's a great answer. Great answer. Well, Paolo, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. We've really enjoyed the conversation and we very much look forward to having you on the podium with our Kansas City Symphony It'll be the dates are April 22nd through the 24th, ladies and gentlemen. So feel free to call our box office for tickets, or you can always purchase them from our website at kcsymphony.org. It's a great program of Copeland, Rachmaninoff, Kodai, and Bartok. Uh, And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And thanks, as always, thanks for listening. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Well, we'll be back very soon with more fabulous episodes of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. But until then, I want to let you all know that it is spring. You may not have realized from all the cold weather and rain we've been having, but that's all going to change. And since it's spring, that means there's a lot going on with your Kansas City Symphony. The Mobile Music Box is back. Be sure to check out our website and social media channels for concert dates and locations. And we'll also be taking the Mobile Music Box to schools all over the KC metro area. And speaking of schools, another amazing innovation that has come out of this awful pandemic is our virtual performances for children. Jason and Stephanie have collaborated to create stunning videos of performances by the Kansas City Symphony with amazing printed curriculum materials. Please go to our website for more information about all of that material. It'll be available throughout the spring. We've got many, many, many more exciting concerts to come in Heldsburg Hall this season. 
You'll be hearing lots more from us before then, though. Check out our website at www.kcsymphony.org to purchase tickets or make a generous donation. We'd really appreciate it. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. We'd love to know you're out there, and that way you'll be sure to get our next episode the very moment it drops. Lots more to come this season on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Bye.